This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 443 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Danny McLaughlin. Now, Danny is a seven-year veteran of fire and EMS working as a firefighter paramedic and is now transitioned into the world of telemedicine. And what makes this story so important to tell is his company is bringing a solution to something that I've seen in my 14 years in fire EMS plague not only the first responders, but also the men and women in the emergency department and the families themselves that receive a huge medical bill at the end of it. With this telemedicine model, they are integrating with the 911 system to offer the caller a consultation with a physician. Now, of course, we're talking about non-emergent, non-acute calls, but many people listening know that we still respond to those. We still transport those. They still take up an ER bed. So I cannot say strongly enough how important it is to listen to this episode. As well as all of that, Danny worked in vehicle sales for a while. So he also peels back the curtain on some of the lack of ethics when it comes to selling to fire departments. We did not grow up in the world of sales and business. We are firefighters. So there are companies that find us easy prey when it comes to that arena as well. So there is so much to unpack, so many great ideas in this conversation. I urge you to listen from beginning to end. Before we get to the interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the fire service, law enforcement, the civilians, the military, everyone on planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories, some of which are full of information that will literally change lives so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Danny McLaughlin. Enjoy. All right. Well, Danny, I want to say thank you so much for inviting me to your beautiful home. 
Um, so for the people listening, where on planet Earth are we right now? So we are we are in uh, right in College Park or slash Orlando, Florida. Beautiful. <laughs> All right. Well, as you know, I like to start chronologically through your life. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, how many siblings and what your parents did. All right. Um, so I was born in Miami. Um, so I was actually a, a native Floridian. I grew up actually right outside of D.C. and came back down here to Florida. Um, but I have uh, three sisters, all younger. Um, and then now I'm I'm married. I have a, a beautiful three month old daughter. I see. Uh, I see all the <laughs> yeah, baby you stuff. See all the here. baby stuff. No, <laughs> no baby right here with us. Um, but no, it's a, a a great little growing family, and it's uh, it's freaking exciting. Orlando is a great town, so. Beautiful. What did your parents do? Uh, so my dad was actually, in, he's in construction. Uh, so, you know, me, I love the fire department, but I had the opportunity to um, work with him on construction sites and get my hands dirty and understand, you know, basic overall construction. Um, and then my mom, uh, she is a speech pathologist. And so she actually worked in a lot of education systems. So it was interesting growing up. I had two sides of the spectrum. I had like the academic route and then my dad is the blue collar like hands-on gets his hands dirty kind of guy so i had a a, a kind of good split beautiful it's funny I've, the number of people that i've had on here whose parents were into speech speech pathology or speech therapy so even really? i just listened to uh tulsi gabbard with on her jocko willing interview um and same thing her mom was a speech pathologist so i don't know if that was just like a, a big career like one generation ago but it comes up a lot yeah it's a it's a that's a really interesting job in and of itself i mean my wife's a, an occupational therapist um and just when you get into the the niches of therapy it's actually a, a really interesting thing to see the how dynamic it all is but yeah i just realized i stumbled over the word speech pathology <laughs> <It's just ironic. laughs> i'm sure i mind mind letters have, have merged together there a little bit <laughs> well with the construction stuff not not getting to your actual career yet but when you look back as a firefighter how much did that factor into you being successful an absolute ton um so i getting to understand just overall basic building construction and how things are set up um, and how things are put together and where the wires go and where the pipes go and how the walls are structured. Um, you know, I, I think it, it provides a lot of insight into really just your overall day to day. So when you're doing your building size ups or walk arounds, like it, it does give you a different perspective. Um, and you're more comfortable around tools from the get go. You know, you're not having to learn how to run a saw and, and, and run your own equipment. So mm -hmm. I think it helped out quite a bit. Brilliant. Now, yeah. what about athletics when you were school age? Oh, it, soccer pretty much through and through. Um, so I played from a little kid into college, uh, even doing some adult, um, definite more so beer league, uh, style soccer, um, up until a couple of years ago. Um, but I've, I've been playing that ever since, and really that kind of coincides with more of my adult leisurely activity of I'm a pretty avid runner. So do a lot of long distance stuff, um, a lot of races pretty much throughout uh, mostly the East Coast. So Yeah, well, I think football is a good or soccer is a good um, sport to keep playing because I made this observation and had the conversation with a few people on here. In the UK, usually... Um, whether it's football, whether it's cricket, whether it's rugby, we don't get to like an elite level in school. You know, there's some people that are very, very good, but we don't have like, you know, 
coaches and gymnasiums and all this kind of stuff. You just play, and if you're good, then you transition to to an actual club. So most people don't get to that level where you see a lot of injuries like you do here, and they can have elite performance at the high school and collegiate level. But that fosters longevity, and people keep playing. Overall, a lot of people keep playing, whether it's local league, you know, football, soccer, whether it's cricket, whether it's rugby, way into you know their thirties, forties, fifties. So it's very interesting to me coming here that that wasn't the case. You had someone that was an absolute rock star, blew out an ACL, and now they're morbidly obese and haven't played since. And we're talking Uncle <laughs> yeah, Rico talk. True, you know? So what I love about seeing football, soccer being popular here is now i think that philosophy is starting to happen and you're seeing that's the sport where people seem to keep playing yeah i mean in 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 orlando in particular you see a lot of like adult pickup games like throughout like random parts of the city and i actually do i I will give the city credit for for having their own pro leagues now you know men's and women's teams i think it did spark a more interest in people that may maybe not had access to it or, or didn't weren't around to it all that much so it's I think it kind of got everybody a little bit more excited about the sport. They do. A, there's a, quite a few leagues around here. I wish there was a, a few, you know, uh, 35 plus 40 leagues. <laughs> uh, you start doing the beer leagues and it's, you know, you got guys in your mid 20s um, coming in a little hard. And it's like, all right, I can't. <laughs> I'm not trying to, to be out out of, out, of, out of work for a while, but um, but it's still a lot of fun. So. Yeah, beautiful. Well, as you grew up and you were shadowing your dad um, in construction what were your career aspirations in high school um so honestly it was it was pretty broad i i didn't really uh it wasn't set in stone on what i really wanted to do um my my actually my mom was she rode on a rescue squad uh just a volunteer agency um up in virginia and so i was around having that ems experience a little bit kind of what's like to hang out in a station um, but going into high school, I really didn't know. I, I just kind of had a feeling I wanted to do something with my hands and I, I wanted to do something a little bit more physical and, and, and be engaged. I was pretty active in sports. And, uh, so I just, I like that physical nature of, of work. Um, I wasn't even opposed to, to staying in construction. You know, it's, it, I was, I worked with him for quite a while. Um, but then fast forward a few years, I, I, I had the opportunity to do a ride along. And really, it just sparked my interest, like just the dynamic of the family style. You know, I come from a pretty big family. My the rest of my family is in the extended families throughout Florida um, in parts of Virginia. But uh, we're we're a monster, you know, Irish family. You know, we breed like rabbits. So (laughs) so it's uh, so for us having that family dynamic, that kitchen table talk. Um, sitting on the, on the front bumper, drinking the coffee, like that just resonated so well with me outside of just the dopamine hit of running the calls. And I was like, man, I'm, this is exactly what I want to do. It's like, look, I get to run saws, go into houses, run lights and sirens, do all this stuff. It's like, that's, that was it. Like that was, I was pumped. So beautiful. So why Seminole? Um, so I actually had some friends that worked there. Um, my roommates at the time, uh, they worked for Seminole. They they still worked over there. Uh, they they loved the county. Um, so for myself, it's like, look, I really want to work where they're working. They seem freaking happy. They they love going to work. They have a good dynamic with their crews. That was so. That was my aspiration was to work there. You know, 
Um, at the time, it was it was it was like that time when it was pretty hard to get hired in the state. Um, everybody's applying everywhere, so I was really fortunate to get hired where I really where, where I wanted to go. And what year was that? Uh, that was in oh nine, oh eight, oh eight, oh eight. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny. That's just when I came back to Florida from California, and uh, I think at the time Orange County was the only one that was hiring. Yeah, so it, it was a up. it was a tough it was a tough little span of time. I mean, I, it was just that between lack of hiring agencies and just an influx of people going through school, it was it was quite a few people. Yeah. Now, one of the guys I remember um, a few years later that was in the the early days of kind of an element of the collaborative um was john bennett oh yeah yeah. One of your I, guys. yeah yeah i love bennett yeah so he he seemed like trying to be leading the charge on the the fitness side so with seminal what was your you know orientation like and what were the kind of fitness standards in that department um so for us uh we had a guy named uh chief gaddy <clears throat> his son tyler now works for orlando um but chief gaddy was you know or maybe still is i haven't talked to him in quite a while but he was just an athlete in the, in the span of just running. He loved to run. So for us, it was a lot of, um, it was a lot of hands-on, a little bit more of that functional training. Um, it was, it was a lot more endurance running. I mean, he really wanted to make sure you could withstand a, a long term on the fire scene. Um, but then as that evolved, uh, uh, Bennett and then, uh, a gentleman named, uh, Jay Steiner. I don't know if you know him, that uh, rings a bell. I think, yeah, so I think he, we know each other. Chief Steiner's retired, but him and him and uh, John worked pretty much hand in hand, getting some of the collaborative going. Um, but those two really helped start the overall like tactical fitness program at Seminole County. Um, had a lot of functional fitness exercises, both with new hires and with existing uh, guys and girls in the field. Um, so they really were kind of trying to get that rumble started just around fitness and and you know improving the the department's overall health brilliant yeah i know chief droz is with you guys now with seminal mm-hmm. um and he was orange county he came into orange county when i was there he was actually my chief in hialeah and then i left hialeah went to california he was my chief in orange county i left orange county to go to reed creek so uh i did an interview with him after he was uh asked to leave orange county and he was by far the best chief they've had in a long time um so that was tragic for them but uh yeah he's with seminal now so i'm sure their fitness stuff and a lot of their progressive uh incentives are probably moving a lot faster now he's at the helm yeah you know i'm, I'm not as involved in it as what i obviously used to I, I don't work there anymore but um you know the department still so still to this day even though i don't work there i still have a lot of pride in in that county um, and supporting what they do. And so I always try to help out in any way I can. If there's any new programs, I, I even still go to some of the, the new hire graduations and different things just to, uh, I, I, I think what they do is, is pretty progressive. So beautiful. And you mentioned Tyler. I met him the other day at the Orlando fire conference. Yeah. Is Tyler it? Gaddy. Um, you know, he's come a long way. It's funny. Uh, just being a, a truckie over at, at, um, at Seminole, and now he's he's running uh, a, a yoga program for their new hires, and um, he's an instructor over here and and off of Edgewater. But what he's doing is he's kind of pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable, you know, kind of breaking the old standards and and getting guys out of just lifting weights and uh, tough and gruff 
but expanding what fitness means to the fire service. So beautiful. Well, where you are now, obviously, there's there's a huge element of trying to relieve the burden in all areas, basically radiating outwards from 911 abuse. So when you were in the fire service, when you were at Seminole, you guys transported as well. Um, tell me what you saw with your own eyes as a firefighter. Were you a medic as well? I was. Yeah. Okay, so as a firefighter medic and basically Central Florida's firefighter medics get their asses handed to them. <laughs> yeah. um, so Sometimes, what, yeah. So what did you see like, and, you know, over those few years um, with your own eyes as far as the, the load on you, the load in the hospitals, the, the impact on the patients? You know, what we were saying is it's similar to what I think everybody probably sees. It's um, you have people that, that they learn to call 911 when they're a kid, right? It's the first number you you learn to, to dial. Um, so what happens is it's utilized for emergency care, but it's also used for um, non-emergencies and then, you know, in certain communities that might not have access. Um, so I didn't work in, uh, call it the Cadillac version of, of Seminole County. You know, I, I worked in, in probably a lower income community. Um, so it was utilized more as a primary care service. Uh, somebody that might need help, uh, maybe a little bit of cold, needs, just has general pain and can't get into a doctor's office, um, needs a prescription refill. So there's aspects to it that you started seeing a lot more influx of those types of calls. Um, and yeah, your call volume went up and it sounds great to run calls, but it's not the calls I was wanting to run. So. So that's an area that I haven't really covered in detail here. So I've talked a lot about seed deprivation, a lot about firefighter fitness, about staffing, about the, the work week, but the abuse of 911. And like you said, it's, it's a, you know, double edged sword because a lot of people, that's their only option, you know? So, um, what I want to transition to like immediately, because I think it's, it's a good thing to dive into right off the bat is, the, the solution that you're you're with now so we'll get to your transition out but what i've witnessed in this last 12 months is some horrific stuff some awful management some terrible science but one of the absolute positives is efficiency and i've talked about this quite a bit i guarantee there is a large percentage of men and women that used to sit on a freeway in gridlock traffic for an hour two hours away from their family to go sit at a desk to do exactly what they could do at home now. The same with homeschool. I mean, I, I know my little boy is chomping at the bit to go back to school. So he, he did each to their own. You know, homeschool is another good model. But I think the telemedicine is something that's really come out of this, this year. And that's why, as we said before we start recording, there's no better time to have this conversation. So tell me why you transitioned out of the fire service and let's start talking about telemedicine in emergency services. Okay. So why I transitioned out of the fire service. Um, so for myself, uh, you know, it, like I said, it was, I wanted to, I recognized that if I were to stay, um, I would learn a lot, but only from the one perspective of the agency that I worked with. And how many years were you there? Uh, Seven, eight, seven or eight years, right okay. around there. Yeah, so, good run. Um, you know, so I had the experience of the new guy. I had the experience of the, you know, that five-year guy where I got to relax a little bit and transition into uh, more of a mentor role. 
Um, and were you on a rescue the whole time? No, I was. I had the. I was able to switch back and forth. So I was on the box and and on the engine. Okay, but through your career, you rode the box at some point as a firefighter medic the whole time, on and off. On and off. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, we did. We did really do, how we set it up was two shifts on the box, two shifts on the engine. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um, but so for myself, I wanted to uh, broaden my horizon in, in public safety and, and EMS. Right. So. Um, I recognize that it's like, look, I, there's a lot of opportunities that branch off of EMS and, and fire ser- in the fire service. Um, so I wanted to see uh, what that was so I could see uh, what else was out there to see how I could br- bring an impact back to the actual agencies themselves. Um, so I had the opportunity to work for a house- hospital system. Um, and that was really my first interaction, uh, being the liaison between a health system and EMS, right? So it's uh, taking my experience and my knowledge of EMS and educating the health system and then bringing that back to the other way around too, where I'm it, it, taking the health system information and breaking back the EMS. Um, I also had the opportunity to, to work with an ambulance manufacturer, which was uh, definitely not in the cards. I had no idea that that was even going to come my way. Well, you mentioned as well business ethics. So- how much of that do you want to divulge as far as um, some of the vendors that sell to the fire service and some of the ethics behind it? You know, I, I think I think with with ethics, it's it's making sure that the people that you partner with when you're working with an agency. Um, so if you're a chief and you're a decision maker, so you're buying equipment, you're partnering with a new vendor, you're working to purchase apparatus or whatever that case is. Um, it's, you need to really vet the person that you're partnering with. Um, and, it, and understand that in a lot of scenarios, these, these individuals are, are, are salespeople, right? Like in the end of the day, um, that's, that's where they hold. But um, a lot of them do have your best interest at heart. Uh, but it's finding those people that genuinely have your best interest uh, because oftentimes, you know, you you need to make sure that you you partner with the right people to make sure you're not you're not getting swindled or or, or strayed away from what really matters to your agency. Um, and you know, a lot of these agencies, these are or these vendors and groups, they uh, they have they work with you know strong business leaders, um, and and that's what they're really good at. So it's it's making sure that that. Uh, you align with the business leaders that that you feel fit the agency's needs. Yeah, so I think that was an important point because we mentioned this the other day when we talked, but you don't think about that. Like we are jack of all trades, master of none. So as we progress up the ladder, now you add all these management skills, these admin skills. Now you're specking a fire, you know, vehicle, and you're you know negotiating with these, as you said, business professionals, sale professionals. It's not something I'd ever thought about, but yeah, I mean, we are a very easy target for a predator in that environment if you happen to come across someone without good business ethics. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to think too, when you when you look at the grand scheme of public safety, um, it's changed here. I called the last, I mean, you know, maybe you can think about it, but it's called the last five years. You start having um, guys with, start getting advanced education, going, getting the bachelor's degrees, some getting their master's degrees. But even 10 years ago, getting your associates was, I mean, that was a big deal, right? So 
when you think about it, um, and this has been going on for a long time, you have, um, you know, Ivy League business leaders negotiating with with guys that oftentimes uh, never had a chance to go to business school. You know, they've they're teched out in everything you can imagine, mm-hmm. um, which is way more important. Yeah, you know, they can they can they can scale rope across the Grand Canyon. You know, they can set up high lines everywhere, which is like they are the best at what they do. Um, But you put them into a room where they're negotiating against somebody um, that has been doing this. It's their high line, right? It's 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 their specialty. Um, And you need to make sure that the partner that you're working with um, has has your best interest at heart. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's it's funny because I agree with you 100 percent. And even with the sponsorship of this podcast, each of the the companies that have been sponsors here, whether it's 511, Thorn, or GovX, um, I approach them for that very reason. My whole philosophy is people are going to buy backpacks. They're going to buy supplements. They're going to, with GovX, it's, it's free. Um, you don't have to buy anything. You just sign up and get this <laughs> one. Um, but, you know, so it's like, well, who do you trust? You know, and, and sadly, especially with supplementation, like you and I could start a supplement brand tomorrow. You buy a bulk from wherever. We go in our garage, we make a cool label and we slap it on and that's it. So with 511 is a perfect example. When you find companies that you know are good people, you know are endorsed by, you know, all these special operations people and SWAT teams and, you know, executive protection professionals. It's it's try like you said, I, I like to advocate for those brands now and say, look, when you're looking at say uniforms, this is a this is a brand that I know reverse engineer from the responder all the way back. And if something's not right, they'll they'll reinvent it. You know, when it's in the fire service and in the uniforms, that they realize that no one was making uniforms for female firefighters. So yeah. it's it's like you said, it's aligning with those people and then you know, bringing that community into ours and saying, look, we trust these people. Well, yeah. So, so anybody that leaves whatever agency, so it call it law enforcement, military, you, you, you see that, you know, there's a lot of vet owned businesses that are, that are selling coffee or, or whatever that case is, right? Um, fire service. <clears throat> Those people left the job, you know, the original job of, of being in it. Uh, but they still want to be affiliated with it. They still want to have that connection. Uh, so those individuals, at least in my experience, uh, usually have the best interests of the people that they're trying to work with at heart uh, because they were on the other side of the table. You know, it's it's coming from a different perspective. It's not just a business person um, that never rode on a truck or or never... Uh, fought a battle or, or never, uh, you know, chase somebody down the street out of a patrol car. You know, it's, um, these people were in those shoes. Um, so now they're looking at it from a different way. But, um, you know, I, 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 I really value the people that I've met that have, uh, transitioned out, but are still connected to, uh, the agencies or affiliations that they, that they left. Yeah. Or, or like, you know, 511 started by, um, a textile um, expert, basically, um, who got into making tactical pants for the FBI, if I got that right. And then it progressed from there. So they weren't specifically in our community, but they fell in love with our community. You know what I mean? The same with 
with Thorne, they, they're trusted by all these high level sports teams now. And, you know, big thing for us is, you know, we have drug tests. You know, we don't want, we don't want to put something that isn't clean in our body as well. So they, they gain the trust of our, um, organization. So I think that's the other side of the coin. If you're not from us, then there has to be buy-in. You have to show us why we should trust you. Yeah, I think I think they think it's absolutely right. You know, it's there is a certain language. You know, I so me, I was I was never in the military, um, but I have a lot of friends that that were. You know, it's and when you get a bunch of guys that were in the Marine Corps together or that were in Afghanistan together, it's you you see this ability to communicate on a on a level that. Though I'm in the conversation, it's they're hitting at different points than I am. Yeah. And it, for us, it's, you know, in the fire service, I can pick up a conversation with probably any firefighter uh, across the country and find some level of of relatability. Um, you know, sometimes it's telling old war stories. Sometimes it's sometimes it's making fun of being a new guy and, and doing different things. It's 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 um, but having that ability to communicate on whatever level that is i i think it, it goes to show that the people um in those agencies do really care about the outcome of whatever they're providing you absolutely yeah. so well i kind of jumped in when you said um apparatus so lead us from there so you were involved with um with the vehicle side yep so, yeah so i i worked on the ambulance side um and really my role there was uh, I oversaw the sales for the country, um, but I really the the neatest part of my job, I think, was actually the development and helping the engineering teams design uh, some of the benefits and features that were a part of it. Right. So it's same thing. It's kind of taking that experience and saying, like, you know, why? Why is this placed here and move this here? Um, so that was, I would say, doing a lot of voice of customer and getting back into the stations and asking the guys and girls, hey, what? What do you like? What do you not like? Um, uh, and then most recently, uh, I had the opportunity to um, transition over to a, a telehealth company called MD Ally um, and where we provide telehealth services or, or a solution um, to public safety agencies, uh, fire, EMS and, and, and law enforcement. Um, but, you know, telehealth is kind of that next frontier of of what ems is going to um there's a lot of different solutions out there uh, but really the overall goal of telehealth in general is providing access to care um, to populations that oftentimes don't have that kind of care um, and then for the agencies themselves it's, it's it's expanding the services that they that they currently offer right so it's it's kind of a twofold approach yeah it it benefits the agencies um but it also benefits the community so yeah well i think 911 abuse is, is a, a great topic um for so many different reasons and affects everyone um it's been interesting this last year with some of the reporting talking about oh this is so bad there are there are patients on stretchers in the hallways of the hospitals and i'm just thinking back to every hospital aside from celebration that I've ever uh, <laughs> <laughs> transported to ORMC and, you know, in, in Hialeah and out in California where we hold the wall, especially in, in central Florida here for hours sometimes. So you have this saturation of 
fire and EMS. You have the saturation of the emergency departments around the, the, the world, you know, London, here, wherever. Um, you have, because of, like you said, a lack of education, you have these horrendous medical bills coming in at the end of this, the transport bills that we send, the, the ER bills. My wife had a couple of bouts of dizziness um, and I mean, I, I warned her, but at the same time, she was worried. But the moment she said, yeah, I was feeling a little numb, which I'm sure was from hyperventilation, they're doing CT scans and everything. And then we have a, a for an urgent care visit that lasts an hour, we have a bill that's like three grand. Yeah, you know? no, and that's it, a family that at least was able to pay it down. That's just, just crippling for some families. So there are so many areas, I think, that are that we can improve. And, and the big thing with the fire service is you're driving our men and women into the ground and each call you run takes a active available rescue away from a critical call and you're taking away time from training. So through your lens, you, you, you find MD ally. What were some of the things in your career looking back that you saw as far as nine one abuse not so much, as you said, with, with the lack of education with some people calling, but the impact of that on these services. So, I mean, for us, you know, I worked in a pretty fairly busy part of town. Um, so, and this is pre-COVID, right? So this is before the saturations of the ERs and before, uh, you know, all of those things. Like you said, we were between the call, which call it takes 30 minutes, to get down the road to the hospital, whatever hospital that is, let's call it another 10 to 15. And then you do sit on the wall for an hour or two at the time. Um, and sometimes even more if it was really a non-emergent patient, you know. Did they ever um, bring um, stretches to offload like army stretches? We had at one point where we were so bad. If you hit, I want to say it was something crazy like four hours they would literally bring fold out army stretchers. You place the patient on that and then you go back to so so we didn't, four so, hours. Yeah. So we didn't have stretchers. We had, we had fold out chairs, like, okay. you know, the stadiums chairs or what you do with, you bring your kids to, to watch a game, you know, mm -hmm. those, it was, you had a line full of stadium chairs up and down the hospital hallways. Um, you know, and that was, and that was just to get the crews back in service. So, so kudos to the chiefs of trying to set something up to, to get their crews back. But I mean, more times than not, uh, the, there was a line of ambulances outside the ER, Yeah, you know, waiting, waiting to go back and, and service the area. But uh, for us, it was, is the, we had to, it was all the move ups that were happening while this is going on. Um, you're not back at the station. Uh, you, you know, you're not. You're, so then, and if, yeah, here's another one too. You, a lot of times when you clear that hospital, you're, you've been, you've been on the call, you've run reports, you've stood on the wall for two hours. Um, then you get another call again and then it's cyclical. So then it goes, it starts all over again. Um, and then you start seeing hospitals that have to divert and all kinds of different things. So it's, uh, the oversaturation piece uh, on the fire service itself is it's, it's, it's a heavy, it's a heavy burden. Yeah. Um, well, I found as well, even when I'm through a mental health lens, I have some really awful calls. And like you said, the moment we hit available, boom, you ping to another one. And you've literally just, you know, watched a baby die in Arnold Palmer. And then boom, you're off to a rolled ankle 
you know on a baseball field and it's like you have to <laughs> and there's no yeah. time to even process it because because the core load is so immense yeah i mean and you know and and you know first responders you know they they the 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 people that are calling see them as as superheroes right the they have the capes um and it's a level of empathy and and they most people do a really good job of 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 shielding it and say your example there you know you see a a dead baby and you go to the rolled ankle but the people that called you about the rolled ankle don't know about the dead baby you know and um so you have to kind of push that down and treat this next emergency or or what they perceive as an emergency no different than what you would any other call um and that's a heavy burden to bear cuz eventually the calls are going to stop and you're going to get time to process and it, it that's that's i think where it hits you it's you know it's when you're in your rack at night and and that's when you process the day and you're like holy cow um you know and and a lot of times you know there isn't a lot of communication about these types of things so the guys and girls they have to process it on their own yeah well i know you you guys sent me um you know the pdf with kind of like a breakdown of of some of the news stories and stats so what are the trends? What are you seeing as far as um, EMS and, and calls run by a lot of these departments? Um, so for the most part, you know, it's a pretty broad statistic um, that's utilized, but it's on average across the country, you're seeing right around an increase of right around 5% of EMS calls a year. Um, but when you really break down each city, county, municipality, whatever that is, jurisdiction, uh, you know, you're seeing right around a 50% of those calls being low acuity or non-emergency. Um, when I say low acuity, I'm talking the sore throats, the chronic pains, you know, the knee pains, the, the, you know, the twisted ankle, that type of thing. Um, not the, you know, the heart attacks or the strokes, those that falls out of it. These are the, like those alpha omega calls that you and I were talking about. Um, so when you increase at 5%, you know, that, that number is going to increase pretty drastically over a period of five years. You know, you're seeing a 25% increase in five years. That's, that's incredible. Um, it's, it's hard to, for a public agency in particular to keep up with that and still be efficient, right? That's, that's the name of the game. You're, you're trying to maintain efficiency with a, a growing rate, um, of calls. Yeah. What, so one, one thing I s- I'm seeing, and it's funny because this happened in my very first department, Hialeah, they used AMR and it was a weird system. If, if you're on a rescue, if it was ALS, you transported on the rescue. If it was BLS, you waited for AMR and they took them. It was totally ridiculous. AMR would, you know, no disrespect to the crews at work. They were given what they were given, but you would wait on scene, staring at a patient in their house for, again, an hour. You know, a lot of times, like, why don't we just bloody take him? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and then, and, and, but at the same time, even think about the citizens of that community that they, they know there's a fire station down the road, but what little they know is there's nobody in it, right? They're, yeah. They're not available. They're either out or is browned out. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, so, so that's, so that's, that's part of this too is, um, it's trying to allow crews to be available for, the calls that they train for, um, while, while allowing other, uh, 
you know, avenues of care uh, for, for patients that might not need emergency services. And that's, that's really where telehealth kind of comes in as far as for 911 specifically. It's, it's, it's expanding the care of EMS while allowing them to focus their care on the patients that really need them. And that's, that's, that's the overall gist of it. I mean, telehealth has been pretty big in healthcare in general, but it started with the specialty units and hospital systems. Um, and it's slowly integrated and migrated over into uh, uh, 911. Yeah. Well, with nationally again, what are you seeing as far as percentages of calls, 911 calls that are kind of alpha omega based? Um, so, like I said, it's, it's, at least 50% for most places. You know, there's there's some areas of the country that that um, do really well and they, they might see 20%. Um, but in other parts, um, you're you're pushing 80, 80, 90 sometimes, um, which is which is I, I didn't even believe it at first. But then you broke down the actual calls that are coming in and you're sitting there with the chiefs and the dispatch centers. And you realize um, it sounds like a high percentage, but the utilization of 911 is just higher in that particular area than it is in, in other parts of the country. Um, so it's, it truly is being used as a, almost as a call center. Like they're just calling for everything. Well, in my last place, they were exclusively the fire department for a, a theme park here in, in um, central Florida. And through a lack of leadership, a lack of communication, they were allowed to call for everything. So, I mean, literally to bring a Band-Aid, you know. So those men and women that were there, I mean, they were just running all day, every day. And it was, you know, so detrimental. And it was things that I think there's such a, a fallacy, like, oh, if we don't do it this way, then we're going to be liable. And I, I think that's completely wrong. Like, if it's not an emergency, you shouldn't be called 911. There's pharmacies, there's, as like you said, tele telehealth, there's all these other routes that you can go. 911 is, I might die, I need to go to a hospital. That's what 911 is. Exactly. I mean, so that's, there's so many services out there. So there are, um, there's oftentimes like behavioral health calls that you can call in. There are social services. There's all kinds of access of care. And even here in, even in Orlando, I mean, the city's done a really good job of, of, building a lot of robust structures, uh, but it's, they're all separated, you know? So it's trying to connect all of the systems all together. So they work hand in hand with one another. Um, so, I mean, like, you know, like to try to get the, those in the fire service or EMS agencies or law enforcement, it's, you know, it's, it's making them more available. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure that if I, if my daughter has, has a problem and I call 911, it's the station a mile away, not the one on the other side of Orlando. You know, it's that, that would that would be um, that would blow my mind if if I heard that. You know, I I, I don't ever call nine one one. You know, thank thank God I've never really had to. But if I did, man, I I want to make sure that they're available for my emergency. Yeah, yeah, and then again that, on that PowerPoint, you you had a bunch of headlines from around the the country, and it's something I always think of too. I got no problems running calls, but if they're calls that nine one one shouldn't be running, my thought wasn't, oh, I, I I should be watching Jerry Springer, I should be sleeping in the Lazy Boy. My thing was always, 
What if we get a stroke? What if we get a drowning? What if we get something that's time dependent? And like you said, the next rescue might be two, three zones away. And we've all been on those, that freaking 20 plus minute transport or not uh, response time. And, you know, you know, it's a trauma alert, whatever it is. I mean, if you'd been the closest unit in service, you might have saved that life. But you know damn well that because of that distance that you had to travel, the chance of that person surviving is a lot lower. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think all of us have, have, have been on the scene somewhere where we are, you know, on a call with, you know, the, the quote, frequent flyer, right? It's the, this person that calls multiple times a day for the same thing every single day. Um, and when that, and sometimes it, it is actually an emergency when they call. Uh, but <clears throat> for those that it's not, you always have somebody listen to the radio, right? It's like, it's on their, it's on their shoulder strap and they hear a structure fire go out or they hear a heart attack or, or something emergent that's happening in their first due, but they are on scene. And you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm missing that fire or, or man, I, I, uh, this is, sounds like a good, uh, gunshot wound or whatever the case is. Um, and that's the, and that's the, the irony of it from the fire service. Sometimes you think of it as a good call, but for the person that called, it's the worst day of their life and you aren't there for them. And that, you know, that's, that's the part for me that when I was in the service, I didn't feel that way. But when I left, I started recognizing certain behaviors that I, I personally held that I'm like, Oh, I missed that fire. It's like, well, that's somebody's house burning down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't available for them. And that's, and that's a, that's a, that's a pretty heavy burden to, to, to carry. Um, when you know that you, maybe you couldn't have saved the house, but you could have saved a portion of it or you, or the dog or or the dog or, or the family photos for that matter. You know, there's something, of value that you could have you've been there for um and the same thing goes for the medical calls especially the medical calls you know we, we always talked about the golden hour you know years ago right um every minute counts but when somebody's having to come from across town or even the next do over so call it five ten minutes that's that's a long time when um you know somebody's having an emergency i mean it's i'm sure it feels like hours waiting that extra five minutes so yeah well, and you, you mentioned the frequent flyer as well. And I think that's another area that us running non-emergent calls creates this environment of complacency too. I've seen it myself, you know, oh, this is going to be bullshit. The eye rolling, you know, the not walking fast to the rig. I recognize this address. And like you said, that one time it might be the stroke. It might be, you know, an actual fire rather than a fire alarm, whatever it is. Um, so there are so many... So many, I mean, there's no, there's no reason not to address 911 abuse. And I know they have it in England too. I remember that I posted a while ago a picture and it was a great picture. And it said, you wouldn't call the lifeguards, you wouldn't call the lifeboats to call them there if you fell in the puddle. So don't call 911 if it's I mean, not an emergency. Well, no, I mean, that's a great point. Or 999. Right? Yeah. But this kind of goes back to what I was saying about the systems not talking to each other. So, you know, in a lot of cases, that person that calls, they get the option of a refusal if that's part of your protocols. And they say, no, I want to go to the hospital. Okay. So the only option is to take them to the hospital. <clears throat> well, you're not going to get seen very fast because. Oh, no, you're going to see faster. 
If I go in the ambulance, it's <laughs> yeah. faster, isn't it? Yeah. Of course. That's like always the conversation, right? Um, but so, so you're not going to get seen faster, but then, uh, the, the system, the hospital system itself, you know, they don't have the capacity to handle these things either. You know, they're not set up to handle additional aspects of social care that, that oftentimes get dropped in the system. So the patient will, uh, get seen by the physician and the nurses and they get released because there is no medical care needed. Um, so then they go right back out, but sometimes that person actually does need something. It's just not the route that they thought was the right route by calling 911. You know, sometimes they do need uh, substance abuse care, or maybe they do need some behavioral therapy, or maybe they do need some community resource that's available um, that doesn't line up with, you know, calling 911. And yeah. that's and that's where incorporating telehealth into 911 systems. Um, and it, there's a lot of different companies out there that are doing it. Um, and some agencies are even doing like a nurse triage, like in dispatch on their own. Like they're, they're doing it, um, uh, in, in their own ways. Like every agency is going to find ways to, uh, figure out what works for them. Uh, but what your, the general concept is, is you're trying to align multiple resources that oftentimes don't talk to each other and getting the right care to the right patient not just the care that's provided when you call 911 it's it's broadening that out and i mean we talked about it earlier but it's it's expanding the services that happen when you dial 911 it's it's a hard thing to unlearn you know for certain people you know it's 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 there, some people are always going to call 911 um it's cuz that's just what they know that's what they've always been taught and in their mind it might be an emergency but in the grand scheme Maybe it's maybe it's not in the in the system of, of public safety. Um, so it's routing that person to the the people or the agency or the services that can that can help them the most. Yeah. Well, I think one of the enemies that I've seen from so many different angles is this again this fallacy that oh just take them so then you're covered. Cover CYA, and it's like no taking taking a, again an absolute non-emergent patient and filling an ER bed is A, stopping that stroke patient that comes behind them or that bleed or whatever it is from getting a bed. It's taking all those resources away into that room where that bed is. It's leaving that patient with a horrendous medical bill. It's taking away a rescue and two, three personnel on that rescue. It's leaving a fire station empty, like you said. I mean, there's so many areas. So I don't, I, I call bullshit on the whole liability thing. And I'll give you a perfect example. I run on you and you refuse and i give you my tough book and you sign and it looks like a spider had a stroke where you signed doesn't look anything like your signature i've got no way of proving that's your signature how the hell is that even going to stand up in court yeah like, I mean, it's basically <clears throat> your word against mine at the end of the day anyway so to me you know if i walk away and you lacerated your your femoral and i'm like yeah i'll get a, get a refusal and i leave you with a tourniquet on and walk away clearly i'm at fault but if you have a headache, we go through everything you say you don't want to go, you do telehealth, whatever it is, and it ends up being that one in a million bleed, we have to stop saying, oh, it was the medic's fault. They should have known. I mean, I, I, how, how, do, how do we get around this, this facade that everyone's liable for everything? Yeah, I mean, so I, and I, I, I'm no attorney. I wish I could speak to, you know, the legal piece of that a little bit better. But, um, you know, it's, 
for as long as you're the provider, EMS provider in this particular case, and you've done everything possible that you can do, and they aren't presenting with anything beyond what what you know is an emergency. I mean, we have a lot of competent people in, in emergency services, you know, like people that are a lot of times, sometimes they're even nurses or PAs or, you know, they serve in other in ro- other roles. I, I just, I, I don't, I agree with you. I, I have a hard time thinking that everything is this concern for liability. And in the case of call it telehealth, um, you're not liable because you're, you're, you're transferring the care to a mid-level physician or a mid-level or a, or a physician who is seeing that patient. Um, you know, and, and in our particular case, uh, we actually are connected in a way that that physician or mid-level provider can actually call back 911 and it gets routed back into the system. So it's, there's like safety nets built in that prevent those one in a million chances from happening. So, you know, it's you, you, you get the headache, you transfer it to telehealth or, or, or that thing. And um, there's opportunities in place where you're not liable, especially if you've done everything by the book. You've held the protocols. You've done all these things. Um, you've done exactly what your medical director would have advised you to do, especially if they have, you know, the you, you have to call your medical director for, for help. I, I think it gets to a point where um, there's a heavier burden if you took them, it, it, it affects so many other things downstream than, than, than if, you, if you just let them sign the refusal. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us as well have been in the environment where it's been nothing. And then, you know, we, we've told them, well, you know, if you, if you get concerned, you know, obviously call 91. If you, if you, if you feel okay, then consult with your physician. The next thing we'll call back. Physician says, I got to go because now they're covering their ass. Even though, again, the symptoms are absolutely minor, a physician doesn't want to tell someone it's probably fine. They, you know, they want that person to go see. So again, we have this compounding thing. So it sounds like the telehealth where you're connecting people that understand our system with this patient gives you an opportunity to, to get away from that CYA philosophy. Yeah. I mean, so when you, you know, the, the old call your doctor concept, um, you know, and, and I know a lot of primary care physicians, but the, they don't have a visual tool to get in front of a patient. Um, they're not used to uh, working with patients in an emergency situation um, where the telehealth encounter. Yeah, it can start as an audio call and or it can be a video um, if that patient has a smartphone device. Um, but a lot of times these are emergency f- physicians or mid-levels that have served in an emergency room. Uh, so they they understand what that feels like to to work with these patients day in and day out. They they know what an emergency looks like, um, you know. And, and, and like I said, nothing against primary care, but but oftentimes they don't ever see a patient in that case. A lot of times they see them for their annual checkup, right? So yeah, I, I don't blame them for for having to do COIA with you know our 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 legal culture of of suing everybody. You know, you you got to cover yourself, um, but. When you engage an emergency physician, I think they have a different perspective on it. Um, it's kind of like if you uh, talk to a primary care, right? Um, I don't want to beat up on primary care, but 
you, you talk to your primary care and you ask them about a heart pain or, or you know, something about an EKG, they're going to always refer you to the cardiologist. And the conversation is always going to be a little bit different because the cardiologist is just accustomed to seeing that type of patient. Um, so I think it's the same in the case of emergency physicians uh, working in the telehealth space of 911. 911 and emergency physicians, they work hand in hand. They see each other in that, in that physician or patient handoff every time. It's, they're just seeing that patient encounter a little bit earlier. You know, you're just not, you're not seeing it on the stretcher. You're seeing it in the patient's home. So it's basically, so in a way, the way we would use medical control and we consult with the ER physician on duty that day as to whether we could refuse, call a code, you know, advise the, whichever center we should go. It's kind of that level that the patient's now getting to talk to. Correct. Yeah. So it's, so you still would use medical control for the calls that are in that gray area, right? Like, you know, and a lot of times you call medical control when it's something big, like where you really are concerned about something. Um, telehealth is for those calls that you, they kind of slap you in the face as non-emergency or low acuity. You know, that's, that's the difference. You still utilize medical control for exactly what you use it for. Uh, but but those low acuity or non-emergent calls, those sore throats that, you know, the iconic toe pains, um, that's where you would engage a telehealth provider. Um, and oftentimes uh, what you can do is your crews can return to service. Um, and, you know, if you're a chief or admin, uh, there's ways to uh, oftentimes even bill for these services now if you stayed on scene. So it's I think the system itself is progressing in a way of benefiting EMS utilizing telehealth services. Whereas before it, um, you know, a lot of people, I I don't know if if you were around uh, when they were community paramedic was first getting started. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a hard thing to have to sustain. Um, When I worked for the health system, uh, I was on part of the board with trying to build something up. But the longevity of it was really just hard to um, facilitate. Now, uh, given all props to agencies like CMS, they're doing a, a system called ET3, where some candidates and agencies across the country have applied, uh, and they're able to bill um, for encounters that include telehealth services, um, and and they're able to sustain themselves a little bit more where before they couldn't. Um, and then they can, it's just, it's just enhancing EMS from what it used to be. I mean, that's, that's really what it, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Well, I want to get into, you know, what that looks like, but one more thing that kind of popped up in my mind when we were talking about this, um, there's a firefighter in Oklahoma city, Corey Britt, who recently kind of made, kind of was on the radar in the fire service because they responded to a pediatric burn um they waited for an ambulance historically from what i understand they waited a long time a lot of times for an ambulance a decision was made they ended up taking the child in the engine and then was disciplined from it now i've heard from Corey. i've heard from you know secondhand from um the the bugles in that organization i don't know i wasn't there but to me the one conversation that was never had was why are these crews waiting for these ambulances over and over and over yeah, again? It's, so it's, I wanted to plug that in. So rather than taking sides on uh, an issue that I don't know very well, I'm going to take sides on the part that we can all comment on, which is 
again, when there's 911 abuse, a lot of these crews are waiting on scene for a long time. Some with patients that you could wait all day, it's crap. <laughs> and some with people that are very, very acute that need to see a physician or a trauma surgeon immediately. So that's the other side of that conversation. When we've had some of these cases, some of these calls, um, that if, if it's an emergency, if someone called 911, we should have a system that doesn't then after we've gone lights and sirens and, you know, through intersections, all this stuff. And then we're sitting at a house for 50 minutes waiting for an ambulance. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's, that's the conversation, you know, we're, uh, where that telehealth piece comes into play, you know, it's that where, I mean, you know, it's not taking sides, but somewhere there was an ambulance on a call in their area and somebody had to come from a much further away uh, to get there or leave a hospital and, and get over there quick. Um, it's, it's, that's a really, that's a really tough story. Um, but you see it across the country all over. Um, and you want, <clears throat> excuse me, you want crews to have access to care, you know, <coughs> excuse me, um, for, for a, a, a medic or EMT or firefighter to feel they have to transport on an engine. <clears throat> you know, that's a, that's a big decision to make. And they had to have waited a while. Um, it, 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 I would, it would be hard to believe that it was just five minutes, you know? Um, so incorporating other services where sometimes that non-emergent patient can be used can be, um, taken care of by a different point of care. You're going to have the av availability of more ambulances in a, in a community. Um, you know, I, I don't want to make assumptions, but, you know, it's if there is maybe other systems in place, whatever the flavor is, um, there might have been an ambulance there. You know, I, I I if every other ambulance in that area was running emergencies, um, you know, that is a very busy department. And and I got to tell you, I I really commend them for what they're having to do. Um, and frankly, I commend him for for transporting and doing what was best in his perception of for the patient, you know, um, disciplinary actions aside, admin and chiefs aside, you know, I, I, they everybody has their roles to play um, and they they did what they felt were right was right, too. Um, but as a paramedic um, and a firefighter that does care about patients and doing the right thing by them, um, he felt he did the right thing. Yeah. And and I, I'm I would always support that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's to say, whatever, whatever the absolute, you know, complete 360 of that story, the core was definitely to do good, you know, and it was an environment setting them up for, to, to fail. And I've been there, like I said, so many times in my career. And it's, again, we can point fingers and blame each other, or we can look at the glaring issue and try and fix that, which is an understaffing. But if you eliminate the 911 abuse as best you can, now the understaffing becomes adequate staffing. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, exactly. So a lot of times it's it's not understaffed. That's it's it's it hasn't the the staffing has the staffing model hasn't evolved with the um, environment around it that's constantly changing. 
So I always relate EMS and I always compare it to other industries. Um, you know, and because I've had the opportunity to to see things from a, a few different perspectives. I, I, I really do feel like I've been blessed in that way. Um, but you, I mean, hell, even look at your cell phone, right? Like five, 10 years ago, things evolved dramatically. Computers, TVs, um, that's just electronics, but furniture, your cars, everything is changing incredibly. It's, it's rapid. But in most cases, if you and I jump back on a truck, there's really not too much that's changed. Um, and that goes for a lot of a lot of systems. I mean, you can even probably even go back further. You know, some medications and procedures and those kinds of things have changed. But the overall system, it really hasn't evolved that much, but the world around it has. Um, so where telehealth or the nurse triage and that ET3 and CMS and all these groups are really trying to get things going. And, and uh, for everybody that started in mobile integrated healthcare programs and community paramedic, all of these things are focused at providing uh, access to care beyond what EMS has always done. You know, like there's a lot of different ways to go about it. Um, like our way, like I said, is telehealth, right? Um but each agency is a little bit different. But it, I think it, it is time to look at um, our agencies and figure out where there's opportunity to improve efficiencies. Um, find ways to keep crews available for emergency care. Uh, stop them from holding the walls. I mean, I mean I, we've seen patients that are literally on stretchers in the hallway. You know, that's... That's that's a that's got to be a terrible feeling. I mean, I've never had to sit in their shoes, but I mean, I can only imagine tens or fifty people walking by me when I'm, you know, in a hospital gown with a sheet over, and I'm just sitting there in the hallway. Yeah, um, it just it can't feel good, and I and I think there's a human nature to this, and there is there is a level of onus where we have to to kind of look at our systems and, and say, look. It, are there ways to improve, improve efficiencies in a cost-effective manner um, that just better the systems for the community and the people that work for us? Um, maybe it's not the, you know, it's we always look at the new shiny equipment or the, the new tool or whatever the case is. But when you actually break down how we run calls, um, that really hasn't changed all that much. And I, and I think it's time for us to, to, to take a look at it and see what we can do moving forward to make this better. Yeah, no, I agree completely. It's, it's funny with the last place I worked because there was such an abuse and a lot of times it was actually the employees of this company that would call us on behalf of the, the patient. We did a lot of refusals because we got there and we spoke common sense to whoever it was and said, you know, here's the options. You know, we can strap your ankle and give you ice. We can, you know, do you have ibuprofen or, you can, or, or uh, Motrin you can give your child? Yes, they're hot. Take their, you know, don't cover them in blankets, cool them down. They'll probably be fine. Um, and so, you know, I can see how that would be the same kind of thing as telehealth as well. The other side of it is a lot of elderly people, a lot of children. The experience of going to an ER is also traumatic. 
Like a, like a scared four-year-old kid does not want to go in the back of an ambulance and be wheeled into an ER next to a screaming drunk person, you know, for a, a fever of 102 and vomiting, you know. So I think the application from, again, a, a, a altruistic kindness element rather than every spinal gets a backboard, you know, every every... You know, every patient has to go to the hospital, transport everyone. I don't think that's doing, you know, service to the medical principles that we swore an oath to. Yeah, I, I, that's a, that's a, a great point. I mean, that even comes down to, you know, your geriatric population going into a hospital. I think hospitals do a great job of trying to keep everything clean, but hospitals are full of disease and bacteria. And if, I mean, look, we did, we had just, or we're still in COVID, you know, um, but it, it's the the child that's having to sit into the next to the, to the drunk guy to the elderly person that's having some back pain that's next to uh, a bed that that has might, might have some bacteria or diseases that really could harm them. Um, where telehealth comes into play, it's being able to provide some level of care where an emergency physician can see the patient in the in the safety of their own home. I mean, and, and use the child example. Um, if 911, the dispatcher recognizes its low acuity through uh, pro-QA or uh, crews on scene recognize it's non-emergent, they don't want to take them to the hospital. Like, look, mom, you need, probably need to see a physician. Would you like to talk to a, a, a provider without having to go to the hospital? You know, I mean, I think most parents are going to say yes, you know. Um, well, especially with the old medical model back in the day was at-home doctor's visits. So what yeah. you're doing is using technology to actually do what we did for a very long time. Exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of coming full circle, but just with additional technology, right? It's uh, what, what was his name? It's like Doc Hollywood. He treated with a Coke or something. Was, I forget that movie. Um, but he always went around to the neighborhood and he he's like, oh, yeah, had, just have a Coke. Just have a Coke. Um, but similar concept, though, is it's, yeah, that doctor's coming to my couch, but just through my phone. And oftentimes it's getting a level of reassurance that I'm okay. And the doctor's going to do a full exam, you know, virtually. And at that point in time, the doctor may recognize it is an emergency. Let's call 911. Um, the doctor might say, okay, let's get you a prescription. Let's, let's contact your pharmacy. Let's get a hold of your insurance company. Well, that's a big thing as well. I mean, how many times do we transport patients purely because their script run out? That's it, right? So you can, but now you have a physician there that, that can write a script, get a hold of the pharmacy, make sure it's going to get filled, give all, get all the, all the, all the resources in play to make sure that nothing is dropped through the cracks. Um, you know, I mean, a big thing right now, too, is telehealth just from a different perspective is on the law enforcement side, like with behavioral health emergencies. Um, so, you know, and I don't want to misspeak here, but I think in the city of New York, um, the city is it has a program in, that's coming into play uh, that's actually not allowing law enforcement uh, to go on scene to non-life-threatening behavioral health calls. So they're engaging social services and behavioral health physicians and EMS to help with those. Now, Which is awesome because I, my son ended up getting Baker acted from his school. All he was doing was crying at his desk. He'd been through some stuff. His mother and her boyfriend were 
going through some things. It manifested through him. He was upset. Some kid in the class was picking on him. He was kind of, uh, you know, imagining the same way as if someone cuts you up and you imagine dragging him out the window and smacking him in the face, that kind of imagination. Um, but he's in tears and they asked him and they interpreted that as, oh, he's going to shoot up the school then. And he ended up in a three-day hole with his shoelaces taken in a white-walled, you know, room. Had they actually let that child, A, talk to his parents because they stopped me from talking to him too, and B, talking to one who's actually fucking licensed and trained to deal with mental health, none of that shit would have happened. What, so, the, And that's, that's it, right? So that goes for your son scenario. That goes for... Um I call 911 and I have a, I, I'm anxious. I'm not feeling very good, whatever that case is. Um, maybe, maybe EMS does come, right? Um, but maybe in the scenario, and there's, there's actually technology out there that, that notes speech pattern that can, that integrates into CAD systems. It's actually pretty incredible. Uh, just, it's like to see if, where you're going to sit on a spectrum of a behavioral health emergency. It's, it's remarkable how far these things come now. Um, but in the safety of your home, without an audience, without the lights and sirens, without the anxiety that comes with all of these people. The officer with the handcuffs for the, the child. Yeah, you know, that's, and that's, that's a traumatic experience. Even if it's with the best of intentions, you have the opportunity to talk to a licensed behavioral health uh, therapist or, 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 or provider. And that person who's trained in this going all the way back to that specialty piece, right? Like the business people are trained in business. The fire departments, they can do everything technical rescue possible. Law enforcement, they're great with law. They know about order and structure. Behavioral health, they're really good at dealing with those particular scenarios and engaging them at that point in time you know, I, I think really can make an impact to a lot of people, not just, uh, you know, it's not just even your son in that scenario. It would have been if there was an opportunity to engage maybe a behavioral health situation, even via a, a tablet, you know, it's you're on the phone and and the behavioral health experts on the phone. And like the way our system is set up, it would have both. So they would call the behavioral health service and say, okay, let's get a hold of your dad. So then you both are on the phone mm -hmm. talking to your son at the exact same time via, via your cell phone and you're looking at him and you're making sure, you know, I, I think that that situation would turn out different. Absolutely. You know, I, I just do. A hundred percent would have, because like I said, I mean, there was some horrible decisions. It's funny. I'm actually meeting with, they got a new superintendent of, uh, the school system and i'm sitting down with them as soon as they reply to whatever date they can do it but and again i'm it's not like i'm gonna go in and demand you know apologies and sue everyone it's the opposite you already screwed up there's nothing we can do to fix that now so how are we going to change how are we going to stop because what really made it worse in that situation it wasn't just my son he was there for three days i think about five children from his middle school cycled through this psych facility on Baker Act holds while he was there. You know, and you know what I mean? It's yeah, just, and it's, it's a man. I that's a, that would be a hard one. I, I can't even imagine when my daughter gets older. And, but it's CYA again. It's, it's a complete lack of ownership. It's a complete 
lack of training because you're a law enforcement officer like you said you're not a mental health practitioner i'm not a mental health practitioner as, as a firefighter paramedic but you just checked a box you shipped that kid off and you washed your hands and said well it's not my problem now well they so it's and i like to look at it from you know even a, even of a different perspective you're you're the officer there was using the only tools he or she had that was the option now Probably should they have called you? I don't. I don't know protocols. I don't know how law enforcement works in that way, right? But it's it's you know we always what was it in fire? It's like another tool in the toolbox, right? It's that same setup. You know, law enforcement now for a lot of different things. Some agencies carry Narcan now. Um, enhancing it with telehealth is is the exact same thing. It's another tool for be it agent EMS law enforcement, fire departments to utilize for particular situations. It's not for everything. You know, it's not the one size fits all approach. You know, that's that's not what it's for. But there's particular patients and particular callers that might need something that traditional EMS, fire department and law enforcement just doesn't provide or just has never provided. Um, and instead, we took him to the hospital. Uh, we had to bake rack them. We had to do s- what we had available. Um, but even though, though we might not, we might have known that it wasn't the ideal situation. And that's, that's the tough part. It's, that's the f- looking us in the mirror and saying, look, is there a way that we can better what we have? Yeah. Well, in that situation, they, they actually, their protocols are very well written and they're all about de-escalation. They took those protocols, they screwed them up, and they set fire to them and threw them in the bin and then made it up as they went along. So the other thing, not staying on a negative thing, the other thing I can see telehealth is now you take away that freelancing element because you're plugging in immediately to someone who's actually trying to make these decisions. It's a behavioral health emergency. They're, they don't have a knife. They don't have a gun. They're not threatening anyone, right? This is not that scenario. <clears throat> I think... This kid with telehealth situation, oh, let me access telehealth. Okay. And then they engage and say, you know, I don't, I don't know your son's name, but, you know, um, just call him Billy, right? So, <clears throat> Billy, like, let's get you on the phone. We have a doctor and we're going to get your dad on the same phone. You know, and then now, look, you tell any kid you're talking to dad or mom, like, okay, I'm, I'm a little bit better now, you know, and... Um, and you know, it's that white coat coat syndrome for, for most kids too. It's they, they know it's a doctor. Okay. I can trust a doctor. It's so there's a level of, of, of trust and I'm not a behavioral health expert by any stretch. Um, but it is, I think by allowing agencies to have access to tools, situations like that, um, that really unfortunate one with the with the Oklahoma agency, you know, it's just so certain things just wouldn't happen. Um, a lot of the news stories that come up, I, I don't think would happen. Um, and you're not, it's not you're not more liable. You're 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 actually transferring the liability to an expert in that particular field. Yeah, and like you said, they have the ability to knock it back. To yeah, where you yeah. end up transporting, and that's no send, send no it harm back to no foul. Yeah. If, they, if they see it's it's like whoa, this is this is an emergency. Yeah. Here's nine one one. Bring it on back. 
EMS comes out and you transport to the hospital. It's, you know, there's, there's a level of making sure that there's a CYA aspect there too. It's making sure that I have an ability to re-engage 911. It's not, that's not the, the buck doesn't stop there, right? It can, if that physician or therapist feels that it can. Um, but if they feel that this is bigger than what a, this encounter should be, then they can engage uh, public safety again. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's a really, really great idea. I mean, when, um, you know, you reached out, uh, when it was a couple of weeks ago, I, this whole convers this whole podcast is about identifying problems, but not just leaving it there, not bitching, but actually bringing in solutions. And I think this is a great solution. And I really feel like a lot of these sub BLS calls that we run are just people that are scared, people that aren't educated, people that, you know, have been told, oh, that's what you do. You call 911. So how do agencies, you know, tell me about the actual product. How do agencies integrate this? And, and what does that look like um, from a person picking up the phone with a, a non-emergent call calling 911? Kind of lead me through that. Okay. So like I said, we, I, I like my agency is MD Ally. Um, and we integrate directly into the back end of whatever infrastructure is set up for public safety. So be it the CAD, EPCR, um, any of the PSAPs, dispatch centers for law enforcement or, or EMS, right? <clears throat> so what ends up happening is um, you're the caller and you call in. The dispatcher asks you, and this, is, and this can vary agency to agency, but uh, dispatcher asks you a series of questions, okay? Um, that's... At that point in time, that's when they decided to, you know, non-emergent, uh, fire department, law enforcement, lights and sirens, everybody's coming, right? You, you go through those series of questions. Uh, once that comes up and that it basically comes to a fork in the road, <clears throat> the dispatcher at that point provides the patient an option. They say, uh, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Jones, would you like to have an ambulance come to your location? Or we can get you in touch with a physician in a matter of minutes. So now the patient has an option. Um, so at that point in time, it can get routed to a physician. Uh, there is no extra apps or extra things. Um, it's a simple text message that goes to their phone. Um, they hit the text message and it pops up to an audio call. If they have the capabilities of a video call, it can turn into a video chat. But we know not everybody in the world has smartphones, right? Um, and we want to make sure that uh, care can access all people. But the same thing goes if they said, you know, I want an ambulance to come to my location because that's just what they've always done. Uh, so the crew gets on scene, they do their assessment and they say, Mr. or Mrs. Jones, you know, I, I, I understand that th this is what you're going through, but I don't think you need to go to the hospital. I think you need to go. I think you need to go talk to a doctor, but I don't think you need to go right now. Would you like to talk to a physician that I can get you in touch with? Same thing, built into the back end of their EPCR. They basically hit a button. It sends a text message and it routes everything over to the patient's original line. And then at that point in time, a provider would come on and that patient and, and provider would be able to have an interaction. Um, everything that was captured in the CAD, everything that's captured in the EPCR, it's, it's actually pretty amazing, gets pushed over into that provider's landing page. So they see the entire interaction that already happened. Um, and then, like I said, if that provider says, wow, this is actually an emergency, then it gets kicked all the way back um, over to back into the EMS system. And same thing that all that information is tracked 
back in and then the call, crews that's come that are running sees the entire interaction you get the notes yeah yeah see because I'm, I'm when i'm thinking about this and you know in the 14 years i ran a lot of ems it was at 90 percent of what we do these days and i think about the dental issues the eye issues all these things where we take them to the hospital and they're like we don't even have the capability they said i want to go so we're like, all right, well, you know, but you educate the patient, you have the after hours issues, you know, maybe that person would have gone to a dentist, but it's nine o'clock at night, there's no dentist open. So having the ability to do that, like you said, having the ability, maybe even, and I don't know if they're able to do this, but give like pain medication just till the next day or, um, but so definitely the- It depends um, on, all depends on the circumstances of that particular patient encounter. I mean, right. you know- some agencies, and I'll even, uh, San Bernardino in California, um, they have a nurse triage system set up in there through dispatch. Um, but similar to like the dental issues and those types of things as well, um, outside of a provider actually seeing the patient, they have connections with all of the community resources. So that it's an extra step. So it goes from dispatcher to a nurse triage line. Um, and then we would go beyond the nurse triage line if it's, it needs to be a provider, right? <clears throat> but that nurse triage line, it's 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 nurses. They do a full patient assessment over the phone and they can connect that caller with community resources that are set up in that particular person's area. Um, you know, they know the geography of the person. They say, okay, hey, there's a there's a there's a community center four blocks down or four miles down that can do X, Y, and Z. Would you like us to get in touch with them for you? You know, it's like in that and that enhanced level of service, I think, helps prevent the the inefficiencies that you and I were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, it's it's truly routing patients and people that are calling that feel that whatever they're calling for is an emergency. Um, it's routing them to the right care, and that's that's the overall move. It's it's pushing EMS in a direction of of expanding the services. And I, and I always say that, but that's really it. It's, it's not trying to trade anybody in or, 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 you know, lose jobs or any, any of that. It's, it's actually broadening the scope of what happens when you contact 911. Yeah. I mean, that's, you're always going to have people that call 911. So why not enhance what happens when they call? Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, that's what I've always described the, uh, the fire service as. I mean, everything that the police don't do, we're it. Like Orange County, we did snake removal, which I never understood because <laughs> we have a great animal department, but they would send us with a snake stick. That was it. Um, you know, and go and try and get the snake and fling it into the neighbor's yard. There's a 0% chance I'm going on that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as an Englishman, we're not, we don't have a lot of snakes. Um, but you know, so, but I can think of so many areas, especially pediatrics. A lot of parents are worried. A lot of first time parents are really worried. And their kid throws up once and they're worried they're going to be dehydrated and they're going to turn into a sultana. You know, and obviously we know that's not the case. Now, there are other elements and other signs and symptoms that make it very dangerous. But mom threw up yesterday. Dad threw up the day before. She's, you know, got a fever of 102. She's thrown up once. There's no blood. You know, it seems to mimic everything else. Do you want to just leave her up in her bed with her teddy bear? You know, here's what we need to do. You know, here's here's what you can, over-the-counter stuff you can give her. Here's the, the parameters, like if this happens, I want you to call us and we are going to take you to the hospital. But the number of times at the, the, the resort I worked at where 
that we never heard from him again because you know the kid just actually they gave him some whatever Tylenol and then the kid slept well and the next morning they felt better you know what I mean and, and, and they and didn't have a $3,000 medical bill because the kid had audacity to get flu exactly I mean look you, you incorporated telehealth into that particular scenario and they call 911 they really want help they're, they're freaking out and it's not. It's no different from when we we're talking about the white coat syndrome um, with with your son, right? It's it's the same deal. You get new parents on the phone with a doctor, and the doctor advises them, "Hey, like, let me see your let me see your your child in the crib." Okay, so they do some checkups. They touch them. They move them around, and then now the physician is now has the ability to consult with the parents and maybe write a script. You know, and 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 advise hey if this doesn't get better go to call your pediatrician tomorrow or you're 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 making you're making de- you're making that that call and that in total encounter um so with so much more substance you're it's it is what a gratifying experience it would be as a parent to have the ability to sleep better at night knowing that a doctor saw my child there's a prescription that's waiting for me at the pharmacy and and I didn't have to go and and wake him or her up and go to the hospital and poke prod and they said everything's good. Um, you know, there's scenarios where it's not good, but there there are opportunities here where you can treat in the comfort of your own home. And and that's that's I think where the telehealth comes into play. And, and that's that's the part that I mean, even for any agency, I mean, wow, it's it's just the opportunity to know that the community feels that your agency provides these services. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And especially you know, with, I mean, with law enforcement. I mean, they I think a big thing that I've heard from a, like the New York, um, you know, NYPD, their police do a lot of the spec ops stuff that we do in the rest of the country. So they do extrication. They do rope rescue. Oh, wow, I didn't and from know a PR st- standpoint. That is one of the positive things that they have going for them. Well, imagine if you added this to the PD repertoire, to the FD repertoire, like you said. I mean, all we're doing is improving it. And I want you know, the thing I want to ask you next is, and if I'm understanding correctly, because you're ultimately still billing the insurance of the patient, it's not at a cost to the department either. Yeah. So we we work with we work with the uh, healthcare systems and, and insurance payers, and we work with a, a variety of different partners. Um, but we don't want to put the financial burden on public safety. Um, you know, there's, there's enough going on, uh, but that's, but that's really the ideal situation is, is that they don't feel the burden of it, but they, they feel the benefit of utilizing services, uh, such as telehealth and incorporating it into the services that they provide. So beautiful. Well, if people listening are intrigued and they should be because I am, um, I mean, again, it just seems to be a solution to a, a glaring issue that we have on, as we mentioned, so many levels, including the patient's bank account, including the ER's bed capacity. Um, how can people learn more about you or reach out to you and, and, and get a, you know, more information for their department? Okay. Um, so, uh, like I said, the company's name is MD Ally. Uh, and our website is mdally.com. So it's mdally.com. Um, and my name is Daniel McLaughlin. Um, so if you want to reach out to me directly, it's 
daniel.mclaughlin, um, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N, at mdally.com. So, um, and if you do have any interest and just kind of want to shoot the shit and bounce ideas, I'll be happy to just have a conversation and, and we can see how it might be able to integrate into to what you already have. Beautiful. Well, I think, I think we've really kind of covered a lot when it comes to the application. Again, I've never heard of MD Ally until you reached out to me, but I truly think it's a solution to one of the issues. And you mentioned there are other companies out there. We're talking, so you're from MDA Ally and you're a previous firefighter as well. But I think that it's, if nothing else, every agency listening to this should at least look at it. I, yeah, it, like I said, it, you know, we of course feel like our solution's the best, right? Um, but, but everybody has a different approach to, to certain things and, and, um, obviously look around, right? Um, it, it, Everybody does it a little bit different. Uh, we have our own way. Um, but I do really recommend looking into a telehealth response option for your non-emergent patients, um, your behavioral health emergencies, and really looking to expand the services that you provide. Because, I mean, from the people that we've talked to and the people that we've worked with, um, it really uh, adds depth um, to what they're doing in the community uh, receives it so well. Um, it's, it's, it just, it's something I, I highly recommend. At least you, you look into as, as a potential option. So. Brilliant. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. Um, so the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated. Um, so, <laughs> so I actually, I knew you were going to ask these questions. So, I, <laughs> um, so completely unrelated, uh, so outside of uh, my telehealth life, uh, I, I do really appreciate um, physical fitness and, and making sure my mind's right and doing different things. So there's a book called Conscious by Annika Harris. Um, it's, it's really about mindfulness and the overall being conscious and, and aware of everything and, and, and being mindful of, of the world around us. Um, so it's pretty thought provoking, uh, but it's it's a it's a it's a damn good book if you if you're looking to you know uh, dig a little bit deeper brilliant what about a movie or documentary and or documentary <laughs> um so movie i'm a big comedy fan uh so i would say uh the campaign <laughs> with will ferrell and zach galifianakis is probably one of my uh it would be probably my go-to <laughs> just because it cracked i mean i'm even just thinking about it it's making me laugh so. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good film <laughs> Uh, any documentaries that you've seen that you love? Oh, I mean, I, there's so many. Um, I'm a I'm a huge fan of. Uh, I'm I'm gonna misquote it, but the most one of the more recent ones was like My Little Farm or Big Little Farm. Uh, that was a that was a pretty cool one um, to see how they they put that, that together. Um, and uh, there was another one I can't often get back to you on it, but it was. It was about the amount of sugar that's basically in everything in artificial sugars. And that, so I, that was a, a whole deal. It blew my mind. Actually, when I worked for the fire service, it was, uh, I'll just kind of go on a quick tangent. Um, I watched this documentary, sugar, sugar coated. Yeah, I think sugar coated. Um, but I watched this documentary and I was like, huh, I wonder how much sugar I take in a day. So for one day, I just ate normal and I jotted down all the sugar and I ate the equivalent of like, four or five Snickers bars 
of artificial sugar. I'm like, oh my God, you know, I had no idea. So it, it actually changed the entire way I, I eat. So one of the most, you know, painful things to hear someone say, and I don't mean this condescending, it's just, it's a lack of education, but someone tells, someone tells me they gave up soda and they're just drinking sweet tea now. And if you've ever seen that graphic of the bags of white sugar of each of the, underneath each of the cans of soda and juices and everything, you'll understand. I mean, I think Coke and sweet tea are like side by side. So. Yeah, my, my buddy, he calls it pop, um, but it's his drink of choice. And I mean, I, I, I always just, it's like, look, I mean, if you, if you like soda, you like soda. I'm not going to fault you for it, but um, I do recommend there's, there's other options <laughs> yeah. that, that, that probably treat your body a little bit better. Absolutely. All right. Well, next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Um, so I would actually recommend Tyler, Caddy, Tyler Gaddy out of Orlando. Um, Tyler, like we kind of scratch the surface on it. You know, I, I uh, worked with him at Seminole County since went to Orlando. But um, what he's doing with Orlando and the overall fitness and kind of breaking boundaries of, of what physical fitness is in public safety is um, you know, it's something I, I would have never expected from Tyler years ago, but it's, it's cool to see him transition into this, this stage of, of what he's doing. Um, so I, I think a conversation with him would, would be pretty relevant. Brilliant. Fantastic. All right. What do you do to decompress? Um, so, you know, I talking about the, I do a lot of running, so that's pretty much one of my go-tos. Um, and I do a lot of meditation actually. So, um, it's going back into that mindfulness piece. It's kind of just the world is fast enough sometimes. Um, so sometimes it's good to slow down and, and just recognize where you are. Absolutely. Do you use any apps or anything or just? Um, so I, 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 I don't anymore. Yeah. So I use um, the app Waking Up by with Sam Harris. Oh, okay. uh, so it was recommended to me and they do a really good job or it's actually um, – it's really Sam Harris who's doing a lot of the conversation. Um, Sam Harris is more well known for, you know, his other political views and other things, um, which is actually pretty interesting because his strong suit, like that's what he's known for the most um, in the grand scheme of the world. But his actual passion is like, in he's like a neuroscientist and he does um, a lot of meditation and, and consciousness conversations. Um, so on here, he has conversations and interviews with a lot of people in that space. Um, and then he teaches you like step-by-step step, essentially how to really meditate. And it's, it's probably been the most effective app, um, that I've ever used. Um, I don't use it as much anymore. Um, I think I've, I've kind of go off on my own now, but I would say that's probably, uh, one I would recommend. Brilliant. I haven't had that one recommended yet, but I've, I had listened to him, I guess technically it was a debate and normally I hate debates, but it was the most intelligent, friendly debate I've ever heard. And it was with, I want to say it was someone from the Islamic faith. And again, it wasn't debating, they were discussing. And it was such an awesome integration, but um, I'm, I'm almost certain that was Sam Harris too. Yeah, he, so he does that a lot. He, he talks a lot about um, a lot of religion, faith, and then he dives into politics a little bit. Um, but it's it's funny because I didn't realize that it was the same Sam Harris when I did the app, you know? Um, and then I 
like heard his voice. I'm like, oh, I've heard this before. And I realized it's the same guy. And then the deeper I dove, I realized that this is actually his true passion. He's just less known for it. So it's, it's a, it's a pretty neat segue into another side of Sam Harris, but, um, I would highly recommend it. It's, um, it was probably one of the best apps I've ever used as far as, uh, consciousness goes. So, yeah, I'm going to have to get him on the show. I've got one of his books sitting on my bookshelf. I forget which one it is. So I'm going to have to read it before I reach out, but I think you'd be amazing. All right. The last question, if you want to reach out to you, where's the best place to find you online? Um, so it would probably just be on my LinkedIn realistically. Um, you know, I would, I would love to say I have all these social media links and platforms and websites, but I, um, I really don't use them all that much. I got to, got to tell you, if you ever went on my Facebook, um, it's, it's me being tagged in all the posts of my baby that my wife posts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like I said, if you look me up, uh, Daniel McLaughlin, uh, on, on LinkedIn, uh, it, and then, like I said, if through my email, daniel.mclaughlin at mdala.com, uh, I'll be happy to connect. Beautiful. Well, Daniel, I want to say thank you so much for reaching out, for bringing this solution to you know, my audience or, the, or this audience. I hate using the word my, our, our community. <laughs> there we go. Community, yeah. Um, my fans. Um, no, the, the community that, that listens to this podcast, because again, it's about solutions and it sounds like you guys have really got a, a great solution to one of the issues. And then, you know, we, ha- we talk so much about the overworking, the, you know, the, again, the, the, the hospital setting, the overbilling of patients. And it seems to address so many different areas and positively affects so many different people. So thank you for taking the time to come on today. No, thanks for having me. Like I said, we, I mean, our, our, we try to really hit our approach and it's not a single point. It's, we think it, this telehealth in general, um, impacts so many. So it's, it's, it's a great conversation. 